You know what a lot of people do when they're getting sick of being addicted? They search Google to find out what kind of help is available. But that's when they realize there's a lot of different options out there. That might seem good, except for one thing. The vast majority of those things are actually powerless to help people really change. Hey, this is Nate Dancer with Purity for Life. On today's show, we're going to talk about two of those things. We'll talk with Ken Larkin about secular accountability groups. Maybe you can go to a place where it feels safe, a safe landing place where you can be vulnerable and really share your problems, um, talk about what's going on, but you're really identifying as an addict with a mutual group of people that are addicts, but there's no one that's living in freedom that can say, yeah, but there is a way out of this. And we'll talk with Gabriel Gonzalez about the ever-popular resolution. For myself particularly, I know before coming into the faith, I tried everything. Um, you know, from even putting scripture on a mirror to memorizing, and they were godly things, but the power of the Holy Spirit working in my life, I had not responded to that yet. That's what's coming up on Purity for Life. Stay with us. Our residential program has been open for about 30 years, and during that time, men from all different walks of life have come to us for help. They're from different socioeconomic backgrounds, they're from different denominations, and even different generations. But there is one thing that many of them have in common. Many of them have tried to get free a number of different times. They've tried a lot of different methods. They've used accountability software. They've seen psychologists and Christian counselors. They've read a lot of books. They've signed up for weekend seminars. All of those things were promising them freedom and victory, and each of them failed to deliver on its promise. So, by the time that they came to us, most of them were skeptical, suspicious, because they'd been disappointed so many different times by things that had promised to change them, but were actually powerless. That's a hard place to be. So in today's show, we'll talk about two things that fall in that category, as well as one thing that definitely changes us. All right, so I've got Ken Larkin in the studio with me. He is one of the biblical counselors in our residential program. You've been counseling for how long, Ken? At least 10 years, right? Yeah, since 2008. Since 2008, we'll do the math. That's 14 years. 14 years. (laughs) Um, So, Ken, what we want to do in this show is identify some things that are very common and that people are believing will help them with sexual sin and overcoming sexual sin, but that we believe are actually powerless to change anybody. And so we really want to try to bring some biblical truth to bear on these methods to show that they're a false hope and that people can be 
in these systems or in these mindsets for years and years just going around and around the same mountain because there's actually no power there. Um, in this segment, we're going to look at accountability groups. And right up front, I want to make it really clear that what we're talking about here are secular groups. And so there is a place for true Christian accountability. We're not necessarily talking about those. We're going to talk about things like Sex Addicts Anonymous, Sexaholics Anonymous, and um, some other 12-step programs. But can you first explain the basic philosophy behind these groups? Like, what is the essential belief system? Well, one of them that lends itself to no hope is once an addict, always an addict. Mm -hmm. So a person identifies with their behavior, and this is something you're going to have to carry for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. And really, that lends itself to the second one, that because of that, you need outside support. And the second basic belief is that there's power intrinsically in these groups. The idea of meeting together in itself provides power for the addict to change or at least manage their addiction. Okay, okay. Yeah, wow. Think about that being spoken over you. Once an addict, always an addict. There's nothing in that that proclaims the, the power of God to change a person, to transform them from the inside out, for the gospel to come in and do a radical rewiring of the person so that they're no longer an addict. Yeah, you're stuck. Yeah, you are. Um, now, okay, so if somebody is looking at these groups and wants to attend one, it has to be because there's some half-truth, some element of truth in the approach, right? Yeah, I mean, that's definitely true. Um, they do get some type of support out of these groups. I like to look at it as a dumbed-down version of what the church should be doing, true discipleship. Mm. That Yeah, there's an element of truth. Confession is a biblical idea. Uh -huh, you know, it's a uh -huh. biblical principle. And uh, accountability, living in the light, is a biblical principle that's necessary for freedom, for sure. But they don't offer really much hope beyond that. You're basically, okay, maybe you can go to a place where it feels safe, mm -hmm. a safe landing place where you can be vulnerable and really share your problems, um, talk about what's going on, but you're really identifying as an addict with a mutual group of people that are addicts, but there's no one that's living in freedom that can say, yeah, but there is a way out of this. Mm. So you're just coming together in meeting, and it's not true discipleship because you're really not being called upon to change mm. or even given the hope that you can change, mm. but it's more just managing your behavior and somehow getting through life with this issue, and it's typically a victim mentality. I have this issue. I'm an addict. I can't help myself. Yeah, I'm just thinking about times in my life where maybe I would find someone who was also struggling with sexual sin, and it's like, okay, let's keep each other accountable, you know, and maybe you get together once a week and you just say, hey, how'd it go? It's like, oh, yeah, I failed. Yeah, me too. Well, let's keep going, you know, and there's like an emotional release in the confession. You've gotten it out of the darkness, you know, in a way, but... It didn't. It never really went beyond that, right? I never like there was no change in that. There was just the confession of sin. Um, so the safe place has a 
it's got like a veneer of hope, you know, but but if nobody ever really changes and like you said, if if all we're ever accomplishing is just managing our behaviors, then that is so far short of of what the gospel and the power of God really promises us. Um, so then you already mentioned a couple things along these lines, but why would you counsel someone against going to a group like this, a secular accountability group? Well, first of all, they're not founded in truth. As a biblical counselor, obviously we go to the word of God for our authority and where we get our truth. And God's perspective is ultimately what matters. And when you look at the idea of once an addict, always an addict, not only does the Bible not support that, it's diametrically opposed to that. God offers the hope of change and even demands change, mm. that he's calling us to repent of these sinful behaviors. Mm. And then that the power is inherent in this group, you know, just getting together, that's not in the Bible either. The power is the gospel, the power to change. It's in Jesus Christ, a person, and in a relationship with him. And that's not they don't even talk about that in these groups. Right. So you're you're basically subjecting yourself to something that's unbiblical and you're basically relegating your life to futility. Hmm. I'm going to perpetually go to this group and it's going to even come against what I'm being taught in church if you're a believer and you're not going to get out of your addiction, but if anything, it's going to actually enable you or encourage you to hmm. maintain it and somehow think you're okay when you're not. Yeah, there is, you know, I'm just thinking about kind of this false hope that we get when someone says, I understand what you're going through, um, which you would definitely get it, a group like this. You know, you've got all this kind of this circle of compassion, this circle of understanding where everybody goes, yeah, man, that's hard. And I know it's it's hard to fail and we all feel bad and, you know, but... The Lord doesn't offer us compassion like that. He offers us real genuine compassion, but then he calls us to a higher life and, like you said, demanding change, but not in a harsh way, in a very compassionate understanding. Like the woman at the like the woman who was caught in the midst of adultery, you know, he offered her serious compassion, and then he said, "Go and sin no more." Right, you know, and that's still the command for us today. Not, um, neither do I condemn you. I'll see you next week. Right <laughs> at this group, exactly. <laughs> so one uh, treatment facility that we found online, it was for substance abuse, and it, it talked about what they called the maintenance approach. And so the idea is that if somebody is hooked on hard drugs, you give them something that's a less dangerous version of that drug to kind of help them with the addiction. So it's kind of like, okay, let's apply it to sexual sin. If we were going to maintain the sin, we would try to reduce the level so that it's just not that big of a deal. Um, What would you say to that kind of approach? Well, I mean, a lot of these groups, they basically foster that mentality to maintain your addiction, uh, if you're a Christian, you would call it sin, but it gives you a false sense of uh, that you're okay with God. 
you know, mm. a false sense of spirituality. Okay, I'm trying to deal with this thing, but it's you're basically trying to serve God on your terms, and you're not interested in repenting of your sin, but you're just trying to keep it under wraps, somehow keep it under control so it doesn't get beyond maybe some boundary that you set, which is really arbitrary and subjective yeah. when God has clear objective boundaries in his word as to what is right and what is wrong and morality. And this deception is basically bred by these groups. Uh, uh-huh. But Paul says, uh, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. You know, you're going to reap what you sow. He who sows to the flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, and he who sows to the spirit will of the spirit reap everlasting life. Yeah. So the idea there is inherent in sin is destruction. Sin leads to death. And if someone thinks they can somehow live in this, it's a delusion because you're on the wrong path. It's like you're trying to get to a certain destination, but you're going the wrong way. Mm-hmm. And it's a life of futility. Mm-hmm. Another thing that Paul said is interesting, you know, and he specifically mentions sexual sin here, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he says, Do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? So he says, do not be deceived. And he starts out with sexual sin here. Neither fornicators, idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites. And he goes on and he says, will inherit the kingdom of God. Um, he offers hope there too, though. I mean, that would basically, all of us would be in that category. We've all sinned, you know? Yeah. But there's hope. He says, such were some of you. So there's actually a way out. Mm. But the only way out is through repentance and faith in Christ. You can't stay in your sin and still have the way out, because the way out is the way out of sin, Hmm. not maintaining your sin. Yeah, yeah. As you were talking about the two pathways, you know, I was thinking, like, they're almost, um, they're promoting an approach which is really just about slowing down your arrival at a destination, right? Like, okay, so now I'm not visiting prostitutes, I'm just watching porn, and I'm just watching it once a week, and so that's a lot better than, you know, what I used to be doing, but like you said, you're still on the wrong path. You might not get to the destination as quickly, but there's still going to be a reaping. You know, God isn't mocked by that. He doesn't look at that and say, yeah, I'm glad that you're not going to prostitutes anymore, and you're only watching porn, you know, once a week. Like, I'm pleased with that. He's looking for a total revolution on the inside and a purity of heart. And you're never going to get that if you are just main, trying to maintain your sin. Okay, so, you know, we've, we've identified a number of unbiblical belief systems in these groups and unbiblical approaches. So what is specifically different about the approach that a biblical counselor is going to take? Well, again, we're going to use the Word of God, not what some man says, like, okay, once an addict, always an addict. But we're going to use the Word of God as our authority and as a means of change. And we're dealing with heart issues here. So we're Mm. going to use the Word of God to expose and uproot the actual roots of this addiction, not just behavior modification, not just dealing with the fruit or the symptoms of the addiction, but getting to the heart level. Why do I do what I do? Mm. And how can I change my basic orientation inside. You know, okay, 
my heart is bent toward this evil. Well, why? You know, what are the roots behind this that I can actually deal with? Because otherwise, you can chop chop that fruit off. You know, you can keep on taking that fruit off every day. But if the roots are intact, it's going to grow back. But if you can deal with the roots, you can not only stop the behavior, but change the whole course and direction of your life. Mm -hmm. God changes people from the inside out. That's the power of the gospel, the power Mm -hmm. to change a man's heart and not just somehow modify his behavior. Yeah, the whole goal of the counseling is very different. You know, in the one, um, it's let's get your life to a place where this sin, well, then they wouldn't call it sin, but let's get your life to the place where this behavior is not disrupting your well-being or the well-being of others. It's not inhibiting you from achieving your goals, you know, and all that kind of stuff. But in biblical counseling, I remember for myself, it wasn't even about the sexual sin. You know, the the heart was being really exposed, like my pride, my self-centeredness, my um, the lack of the fear of God. That resulted in sexual sin, but that wasn't really – like I never would have said, oh, yeah, that's my problem. My problem is – that I'm self-centered. My problem is that I'm arrogant. I never would have said that. Exactly. I didn't know that at all. It was the light of of God's word that was exposing those things. Okay, let's let's talk about um, accountability in general, because I think what some people do is they try to find a person who will enforce rules in their life so that they don't do A, B, C, X, Y, and Z. You know, they really want to, and they recognize that, and so then they say, okay, I got to get a person who's going to hold me accountable. It's almost like a police officer that's just watching your every move and blowing the whistle when you do something that's wrong. But that is exactly what you're talking about. That's not a heart change. That's something external to force me to to abide by a, a rule that I really don't want to keep. Why, uh, I mean, why is that approach flawed? Well, I would say, first of all, because uh, getting back to the whole direction or tenor of someone's life, morality, I, I love this statement, morality is not a line, it's a direction. Mm. So it's not you trying to rein yourself in or you have some type of prescribed boundaries that you've made up yourself, Mm -hmm. because typically we've blown past God's boundaries way before that. You know, okay, if I don't cross this line, no, you're ready to hit, go over a cliff by this point. Yeah. You know, you've already blown through all the stop signs God set up. Yeah, that's good. So morality is not a line, it's a direction. It's not how close I can get to my sin or how much I can maintain my sin or do what I love, but somehow still maintain a relationship with God. But I should be going the other direction. How far out of the world, how far out of my sin, how far from this behavior can I get? You should be moving toward the Lord and away from that. Yeah. So basically, no one's going to change without repentance. You have to, first of all, acknowledge that what you're doing is wrong and that I do want it and that it's evil 
and that you're sinning not just against some doctrinal system or some morality or moral code, you're actually sinning against a person. You're Mm. sinning against God and doing things that are not pleasing to him. So if someone claims to be a believer and they're living in this sin, that they're basically saying, I'm going to do what I know displeases God, and somehow that's okay. First of all, God's not okay with that. But if you really love the Lord and desire to please him, you shouldn't be okay with that. You should want to repent, and not just to alleviate consequences, but because I want a relationship with God, and I want to do what's pleasing to him. And that's really a a major difference between biblical counseling and secular counseling. As you mentioned, secular counseling is all centered on yourself, and it's typically damage control. Biblical counseling centers around the Lord, wanting to glorify him and please him and your life, you know, to come into alignment with his word and what he shows us is right and true and just and pure and holy. Not just, okay, I'm just going to somehow manage my myself and, you know, if I can just somehow alleviate whatever consequences or minimize them, I'll, then I'll be okay. Um, yeah. But it ultimately... It's it's a life of futility. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it just reminds me as you're talking about what Jesus said. You know that <clears throat> in the law, it said that you shall not commit adultery. But then he turns around and says, "But I'm I'm going to tell you that if you even look at a woman to lust after her, then you've already done that. You've already committed adultery in the heart." And so that really, it ups the ante, or how would you say it? It really digs deep into the heart issues and asks us to evaluate things like, are the things that I do for entertainment, is this enticing me to be in a lustful attitude, you know, or a lustful mindset? Are the places that I go? taking me into a lustful mindset, you know? And if you're really going to follow Jesus, then it's not just the the activity or it's not just the the action that you're looking at, but like you said, you've already blown through the, the stop signs as soon as you put yourself in that lustful kind of mindset, even if you never do anything right. outwardly in your heart, you've already really crossed lines. And man, that thing that you said about morality being a direction. That's so good because I think we are like that. Our flesh is like that. We we want to go as far as we can into the thing we love without crossing a line that we've set, you know? And like you said, it's so arbitrary. For some person, it might be, I don't want to look at pornography. For another person, it's, well, I don't want to give over to self-gratification more than once a week, you know, everybody sets their own line based on what consequences they want to avoid. But wow, yeah, this is so good. I I definitely hope people are are listening because because the stakes are high and because God isn't mocked, you know, what we sow we reap. So maybe talk directly to a professing Christian who's in one of these groups, what will their lives look like in the future if they don't really pursue a a deep heart change? Well, they're basically relegating their life to a life of, again, futility. 
basically uh, cycles of sin, confession, you know, failure, confession, and then sin again, failing, confessing, whatever. It's just going to be, you're going to be stuck. And if you're actually going to one of these groups, if anything, rather than helping you get out of your behavior, it's going to encourage you to continue in it. And you're never really going to get anywhere. And and the question that really you need to ask yourself is, do you love the Lord? Do you want a relationship with you? Because typically guys that are in these groups are really just trying to minimize the consequences of their sin. They're not interested in truly changing. They love their sin and they're just trying to keep it at bay so that their lives don't spiral out of control. And that's not good enough for God. Mm. God wants all of our hearts. Yeah. But the the awesome thing about the gospel, the first part of it is bad news, that we're sinners and we need to change. But the second part is good news because Jesus came to save us from our sins. So if you really want change, it's available to you, but you're not going to get it by going to one of these groups that actually helps you to identify as an addict that you're stuck in your sin. And actually, you're being regularly exposed to things that aren't even true. They're unbiblical, and they're against the faith that you profess to believe. So if anything, it's going to encourage an undermining of your faith mm. and encourage you to stay stuck. And probably the method lends itself to psychological constructs or however you want to say that, that you're going to probably think of yourself as a victim and think even God's okay with your behavior. He understands, I'm just a sinner. I need a savior. But God commands us to repent and he gives us the power to repent and change. Mm -hmm. And they should be desperate enough to cry out to the Lord and ask for that change. And especially mm -hmm. if you do love the Lord and you're really battling with this thing, the power of Jesus Christ is available to set you free, but you have to cry out and ask for it. Yeah, amen. All right, Ken, thank you so much for coming in, giving people a lot to think about. Thank you, Nate. Jim was a pastor, a pastor who had a secret. For years, he'd been looking at pornography. Finally, he decided to try and get some help, and someone recommended that he find a 12-step program. He agreed to go. Here's a testimony of what that was like for him. I believed that education was the approach to solve the problem. I just assumed that the more you understand about the process of addiction or the more you understand your particular addiction, the more likely you'll find the cure. I needed to understand the nature of sexual addiction or so I thought, you know, how it works, what's going on inside of me, uh, what was part of my past that makes me do what I'm doing now. And only when I understood how the addiction works would I be able to overcome it. And that, that approach just makes sense. So there was a lot of material that was available to me, a lot of the uh, psychological studies uh, published by Patrick Carnes and others that explained the mechanics of addiction and how it works. And, and I studied that material for quite a while. My first attempt to get help was to go to a 12-step program. That's just what I thought I needed. So I found uh, SAA, which is Sex Addicts Anonymous. I found them online, and there wasn't a local SAA group that I could find to attend, so I began calling their phone numbers that were listed on their websites. And I soon found myself part of a national and even international phone calls, like group 
phone calls that provided accountability and an opportunity to talk about your struggles and, and your addiction. I started seeing a uh, licensed professional psychotherapist, and uh, he said that he specialized in sex addiction, and I saw him weekly for many months, and uh, he directed me to an essay group in that city. It was about 70 miles from where I lived. I was going to him, and uh, he told me I would be better off, better served in an SA group, which is Sexaholics Anonymous. And I attended a 12-step program every Sunday night for a year. Um, yeah, and, and uh, I also attended uh, sessions at another counselor in a city three hours away. And I only visited him a few times, but his approach was going to be individual and group counseling. And it was all psychological in nature. So those were all things that I tried before coming to Pure Life. Well, there were several things about the 12-step program that I did find helpful. First of all, it was helpful to actually be doing something rather than doing nothing. Uh, it was helpful to discover that I wasn't alone, that my problem was quite common and there were a lot of other men who were struggling with me. But I began to get the sense that it wasn't going to be enough. Because while I was learning strategies to try to control my behavior, it wasn't changing the way I thought. And I was basically white-knuckling my way through temptation and struggle. I, I went, as I said, every Sunday night for a solid year. And the most disturbing part about being in a 12-step program was the fact that I was surrounded by men who came every week, same as I did, on a Sunday night. And as we went round the circle and announced how long we had been in sexual sobriety, how long it had been since we had acted out, uh, the vast majority of men had been sober since last Thursday. So I began to see that there was no lasting change in most of the men. And that's disheartening. You begin to believe that while you might be able to control some behaviors, you're never really going to change. You're never going to beat this thing. The difference is vast by comparison. Here at Pure Life, we don't spend a lot of time rehearsing the details of your sexual sin. Uh, we don't dwell on the sexual sin at all. I mean, it, 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 it has to be dealt with, but even though that's the sin that brought us here, it's only symptomatic. What needed is the complete dismantling and destruction of the self-life and repenting of the sin of pride. Who knew? But that's the source of it all. And the main difference between pure life and other approaches is that the psychological approach uses education and therapy to re uh, research your past and to teach you the science of addiction and to modify the offending behaviors by teaching you new behaviors and 12-step programs do offer a spiritual approach but often fall short because they don't invite the work of the Holy Spirit into your life or use 
the Word of God. Your, your higher power can be whatever you choose your higher power to be. Your higher power could conceivably be the group itself, but here at Pure Life, we come to God through Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, and we emphasize not modification of behavior, but a changed heart issuing in a new life. And that's entirely different. Well, my turning point came about two months into the residential program, and the word that describes what happened is the word brokenness. I mean, the Bible talks about the sacrifices acceptable to God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. And uh, that's the necessary factor. That's the missing piece uh, that's, that psychology isn't aiming for and that 12-step that programs often miss. What God is looking for more than anything else is repentance. And by repentance, I don't mean that you're sorry for your sin. I mean that you are devastated at the extent of your sin before a holy God. He shows us ourselves and we're undone. But it's at that breaking point, at that place of utter devastation before God, that we cry out to Him to do something in us that only He can do, which is to forgive us and change us. The gospel is about the power of God to save and deliver, not only from hell in the end, but from the power of sin right now. Real change takes time, but it is available. God used pure life to change and save my life. I'm sure I'd still be in sin today without the help that I received. But I am free, and I'm walking in victory every day. I have a life in God and a relationship with Christ that I never had before. I believe in what we do here, and so God called me to stay, and I'm thankful for that. I obviously recommend our ministry to any man in sexual sin who needs help. There's something really tenacious in the human spirit. Something that doesn't want to go down without a fight. And we love this. We love the stories of self-made men, the underdogs who face impossible odds, but they believe in themselves and they dig deep to find the strength to overcome. But for every one of those stories, there's 10,000 stories of people who never quite find in themselves the strength they're looking for. In our next segment, we expose the folly of the resolution. So, Gabriel, there's a website called YouGov, and it's an online polling form. And a couple of years ago, they did some research, and they found out that New Year's resolutions are still really popular. Um, 68% of people said that they would make one. And I think that anyone who has made a New Year's resolution can identify with this, that there's a big difference between having a good intention and actually experiencing a changed life. Because really, resolutions have no inherent power to change us. That's what we want to talk about. Why resolutions and making resolutions is really just um, potentially, I would say, most of the time an exercise in futility. 
In fact, the Bible doesn't say anything about making resolutions, but what it does talk about is repentance. So in this uh, interview, we're going to kind of contrast making resolutions with repentance. Let's start with um, this. Why is repentance important, biblically speaking? Yeah, that's a great question. Part of repentance, the importance behind it, is that it is to bring glory to the Lord. This is a changing that is of a godly change, and it comes from God Almighty alone. And it isn't a uh, typical one-time thing, and then I keep going on, which is often sometimes a uh, resolution that people come to the end of something, and then they can move on from that. Uh, But repentance is so important because it is actually a part of the lifestyle of a Christian. The believer has to have a lifestyle activated by the Holy Spirit and ongoing repentance. Okay, let me just make sure I'm understanding what you're saying. So yeah. basically, the the reason that repentance is so important is because it's not a human effort. And so because it comes from God, then it's not about a man making his life better and then being able to boast about, look at what I did. Repentance is coming from God, and then there's this transformation that that glorifies the Lord, and someone says, wow, like, look at what God did in my life. And it's not like this one-time thing where at the end of 2022, I decide, for the next year, I don't want to do this. You know, it's like, I'm turning away from this once and for all. That's basically what you're, what you're saying? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, knowing that we are all sinners, the one beautiful passage in Jeremiah um, talks about boasting in this one thing, and that is to know the Lord and that you understand him. That's his desire. And I receive that as an invitation from the Lord. It's not about having this wisdom or the might of men or even having riches, but it is knowing mm. him and knowing how compassionate, merciful, how just he is. Um, but it is to know him and understand him. And that is a only that is a only work of the Holy Spirit. You know, the other part too is that the gospel has such a part of this. You know, hearing the gospel, bringing about the knowledge of Jesus in a person's life is the very thing that, for me, I see it transforms somebody. It is the very thing that penetrates into the core of the heart, and it begins this painful, even, I could say that, mm-hmm. uh, process of illuminating the heart out of darkness and into a marvelous light. And for myself particularly, I know that I have tried before coming into the faith, I tried everything, um, you know, from even putting scripture on a mirror to mm-hmm. memorizing and they were godly things but the power of the holy spirit working in my life i had not responded to that yet and when he began to bring me into repentance that's when my deeds began to glorify the lord apart from that there was no bringing glory to the lord and there was no real relationship with jesus you know and that's that resolution that Sometimes I even struggled with that before coming into the faith um, because I was I was wanting change to happen so badly. I really wanted change in my life. And that 
process couldn't happen um, because I kept getting probably about two months deep into that resolution before falling into either sin or trying to do something else. But the relationship that I have found in Jesus through repentance has really, it's brought me into a life that has been totally different than a resolution or something that I could try and figure out or conjure up on my own to try and make things even better. Yeah, I I really like what you're saying because it, it makes a lot of sense that in both cases, both resolutions and repentance, the goal is the change of behavior, but with repentance... Repentance actually brings you into a relationship with Jesus, where resolutions doesn't. And a lot of people who make resolutions aren't even seeking a relationship with Jesus. Mm. They're just, it's more of like a self-improvement thing. Yeah. I want to better myself, you know? Mm -hmm. And that falls so short of what God is actually calling us to. He's not calling us to just better ourselves. Yeah. He's calling us to know him. And without repentance, we're never going to know him. Um, I wonder how many people have a negative connotation in their mind with repentance. Like it sounds like it's all about pain and it sounds like it's about misery. It sounds like it's this coming before God with brokenness and tears and sorrow. And all of that is true. But sometimes I think we can miss the beauty of repentance when we only see the dark side, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Uh, What do you think about that? Yeah, I really struggled with this in the beginning um, as well. I I did. I struggled with a negative view of repentance because so much of my effort was failure, failure, failure. And so when it came to repentance and I hear this word again, I'm thinking I've got to do something and this word has got power behind it. It's in scripture. What's not working in my life? And um, it was over time that I began to realize that this is the process of turning um, and allowing the Holy Spirit through the scriptures to really renew, transform my way of thinking that ended up being a part of, I'm coming into the kingdom of God. And this negative connotation that I used to have about repentance, as I began to get more familiar with the Lord, I began to realize this, this is a gift. God is good. And this is something that is pleasing to him to give to me. And so I began to really receive the repentance, this turning uh, to him. And whatever I was going through, I realized I can turn right now to him. And it began to change my whole view. This is no longer negative, not only for me, but this is great news. This is a part of the gospel, and it has to do with all people. And it began to change my whole perspective. And there was a strong... um, I was just, I was in so much bondage. And so shame and guilt, I always saw, especially with repentance as a a negative thing. But now realizing that this is something that God's given to make an awareness in my life that things are either not right or they need to be corrected or aligned in turning to him, that's where my change has come. And that's where I can really see these things needed some serious correction in my life. 
from negative views of it to not just a positive view, but I needed to begin to have faith and trust God that repentance, no matter how painful, no matter how embarrassed or how downright awful things might be, I'm going to have faith and believe that God's good and that this gift of repentance is good because it's from him. Yeah, I think that maybe a human analogy could be something like for a person who is needing to undergo like a series of painful surgeries, mm. you know, that that process is only going to seem negative because that person hasn't yet experienced the benefit of that, sur- you know, those surgeries. Whereas right. somebody who's on the other side is saying, listen, I know it seems totally negative, but look at your life in three years or five years or 10 years. Right. You're going to experience a quality of life that is so far superior. It's worth the pain of going through. Yeah. But I am wondering maybe if some people who are listening still don't even really have a clear understanding of what repentance is. Mm -hmm. You know, we've talked about um, how it's different from resolutions, and we've talked about how it's not a negative thing, but maybe some people don't even understand what it is. What's a simple, maybe practical definition of repentance? Right. Well, I think it's really important to make sure that as repentance is a part of a life, that is a part of the lifestyle you can't just repent and um, be done with turning to the Lord or think, I've already repented, and so there's no more sin or no more issues. I'm just going to be right with the Lord. Yeah, like I did that 10 years ago. I don't need to do it again. Exactly. Okay. In fact, um, I would even say that practically speaking, um, recognizing weakness, uh, being poor in spirit is a major part of repentance. It's realizing that I've got a great need and there is a great savior and I'm going to be able to turn to him. Um, another part is that repentance and turning to the Lord began with me crying out for that. God, draw me to you. And having having a desire and a yearning didn't come naturally. Um, that was not mm. something I could work up. Um, but I knew that that's part of repentance as well as I began to understand, you know, especially seeing other people turning to the Lord. This is something that's real. There's passion involved in this. And I can't just stir this thing up. And so a major part of this repentance that I was coming in was not just focusing so much on what I could do, how I could repent, because there isn't really an equation that equals out to a perfect repentance. Yeah. But it's a beginning and a desperation that begins to happen where you're like seeing the sin in your life and you're beginning to realize, I need Jesus and I only need him. And those, to me, that's the beginning part of a practical repentance. Mm -hmm. God works the rest of that out in the shedding of the old life and the reproving and the correcting and the um, undoing of the world. All of that takes time and it happens, but practically speaking, I believe just being able to turn to the Lord, put your faith in Him, and taking those first steps um, of realizing, I I need that need. It's not just I'm a sinner, but I need Him. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the beginning part of that crying out, and I believe God will give to that person true repentance. Yeah, yeah, it, I can just relate 
to what you were saying because I tend to, I want the formula. Mm. That's just who I am by nature. I want the formula. Yeah. And so it's like, well, just tell me the four steps, mm. you know? Yeah. Tell me exactly what to do and I'll just go do it. So easy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but again, that really goes back to the the kind of spirit that comes when we make resolutions. Wow. It's self-effort, wow. right? That's it's, exactly right. And yeah. so when repentance becomes a formula, it really leaves God out of the, the equation. Wow, yeah. Um, so, you know, I mean, the, the simplest definition could be something like turning away from sin and turning to God. Mm-hmm. But the way that that practically works out, I think, like you're saying, it could happen a hundred different ways. Yeah. You know, because God deals so individually with us. Yeah. And some things that work for me might not work for you. Right. You know, like he might call, um, and I think we can see this in the guys in the residential program. Like if some if some guy shares his testimony, oh, I did this, and then I oh, and yeah. then it worked, you know, and God really, and somebody else tries to copy that or imitate that. Yeah, it's not like, going to bring the freedom. You have like, for example, you know, somebody. I went out to the cross. I cried out. God came. I fell on my face, and I was undone. And then it's like you've got ten guys ready to camp out in tents on the ridge, exactly. waiting for God's presence there. Yep. But it doesn't happen like that. And especially, like I think our listeners definitely should be able to know that's a good thing. God is so into the relationship aspect and the individual that he will, he's perfect in all of his ways. So he's, he is totally flawless. When he brings repentance, there's no error in it. Um, That's good to the one who is struggling with the mathematic formula because God does away with that and says, no, I'm going to meet you where you're at. Mm. Cry out to me. But I have to also say, Nate, that, there are some practical um, things to not do, some okay. practical misses for repentance. And I would I would say through especially the examples they have in Scripture, the obvious is Cain, you know, rejecting or regretting rather that he killed Abel, that regret that's there. Saul regretting his disobedience and even Judas having this remorse that came mm-hmm. about betraying Jesus those moments, especially of regret that you can see in Cain, Saul, Judas, for example, man, you've got guys that have continued on their way and not actually come to a place where they're they're surrendered and there's a there's a relationship with the Lord versus mm-hmm. the others that actually have. Yeah, yeah, that's so good because I mean, how many times have we heard somebody, say, like in the counseling office or just talking to somebody um, at dinner, one of our students, like, well, I've been repenting for years Mm. because they assume that when they feel sorry or regret for their sin, that that equals repentance. And so then it's like, well, but I've been, you're saying that I need to repent, but I've been doing this for three years, five years, mm-hmm. 15 years, and nothing's changing. Right. You know, yeah. and it's like, well, that's that's regret. Yep. And sin brings regret because it always destroys. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean repentance. Yeah. You know, and so, yeah, I think that's really good. It's like, 
one big practical miss is don't mistake regret for repentance. Yeah. Because repentance is going to bring that power to change. Absolutely. Whereas regret almost never does. Yeah, exactly. And it's got such a counterfeit to it. Um, For my own testimony, it was this just huge cycle, but it left me so self uh, oriented, just thinking and constantly wanting to make myself better, get myself mm. better, you know, if not thinking what's wrong with me. And um, at the end of it, that's where I really had to realize that that finger ha- was pointing right back at me. I was the one who actually needed to repent and stop feeling sorry, stop feeling the regret, because all of the feelings and emotions that I was having, like you had mentioned, they'd have been there for years. There was no power. There was no change. And so that real uh, repentance, that's going to bring the power to change for anyone. And that's not based off of what Gabriel has to say or anyone else. It is in God's word. And it's a promise. And having repentance and then believing upon the Lord for salvation, there will be evidence of a transformed person. Absolutely. Yeah. So repentance, obviously happens on the inside Mm -hmm. of a person. And so you probably can't see the very beginnings of that happening. But then, you know, you as a counselor, you are looking for things on the outside that's going to tell you, yeah, this this is genuine repentance. How do you tell the difference? Yeah. So even for a personal, I guess, perspective, um, I love 2 Corinthians 7.11 because it gives some great indications about what that can look like. So verse 11 says, see what this godly sorrow has produced in you. Now, this is the part where you can really get a sense this is what godly sorrow will produce. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves What indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point, you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. So it's a part of the will that's being broken here and really coming into an agreement uh, with the Lord. And from the inside out, there is going to be someone wanting to get right with mom and dad someone that's going to want to get right with their wife, husband. There's somebody that is struggling with bitterness, and God, bam, opens it up. You've been dealing with this for years. Time to get right. And so there is going to be, I love what it says. It's almost, it's a passion, and it's a vehement attitude to get right. And it is a willingness at any cost. I just don't, I don't care what I look like, so to speak. I'm going to get right with this person because I'm right with the Lord and it's going to please him. And so that inwardness you see getting right with the Lord, that's that running to get right with other people. Or even uh, Zacchaeus is another great example where you've got a man who has encountered the Lord and he's not wanting to just make things right with other people. He's zealous to do more than that. He's giving more back, more back to the people that he's taken from. And that is a, that is something that I have struggled with over the time of, you know, walking in repentance. But when you taste and see God is good, you are not going to start counting pennies and dimes to try and figure out if this is what God is pleased with. You're going to do what he's asking and 
you're already right with the Lord. So anything he puts before you to follow through with that type of repentance, that outward repentance, it's not any longer my self-righteousness that I'm living for. It's not my good deeds even. It's This is pleasing to the Lord. I'm right with him. And so now I want to take that and I want to be able to walk this out. And so from inward comes the outward life mm. of a man who's walking or a woman who's walking in the Holy Spirit, walking mm. with the Lord. Yeah, I mean, I, I hope that people have been listening closely because there's been, even though, again, like we didn't give a formula for repentance, but there's been a lot of the quality of repentance. There's been a lot of what repentance produces. And um, so I think you've given people a lot to think about. If we, you know, if, if somebody's saying, okay, like what's the first step? Like, I really want this. You know, what would you say? What's the first step? I would say um, prayer. Prayer is such a powerful part. Um, having the Lord, especially knowing that God's heart on the matter of repentance is for you, is for your good, and is not only to restore things in your life, but is to conform you to the image of Christ not even to make you, like what we had mentioned earlier, a better person to get your New Year's resolutions right, financially better off, or even a restored marriage, but to conform you to Christ. Um, So I would start with prayer and seeking the Lord and really beginning to get very serious about things. Uh, If you've noticed that you've been blame-shifting, take responsibility for it. Don't minimize your sin anymore. If you've realized there's been bitterness there uh, in some of the relationships and you've got criticism or judgment, you need to really get before the Lord. And without allowing anything, anything, even a thought to come up and say, but you've done this and this and this, which is good, or this part, no, your your whole heart and your mind being in a clear conscience before the Lord where you see he is holy and he is other than and you are not like him and allowing him to come and search, come and search the innermost. And I would even say discern, to discern me, God, to know me. And that type of crying out and that type of relationship in the beginning part, um, that is the really the process that I would tell anyone to start with. Okay. And um, is there anything after that? Yeah, I would say that this is a a lifestyle. Uh, repentance is a lifestyle and it is a process. Hmm. Um, and I would also say there's a reality to this repentance where Maybe some of the bigger things like the habitual sin, like, okay, you cut out the pornography, you cut out maybe even the bad movies and the music, but there is a lifestyle of dying to self, a denial of self, taking up the cross and really a deeper life that you get into the needs of others. That's a part of repentance as well. That's a part of realizing like I'm wrong in my heart motives and my disposition at times towards other people. It's not like Jesus. And I want to grow. I want to grow. And that's what I would encourage anyone to have a zeal to grow, to be more like Jesus. I know I'm working, continuing to go through. And that's what I would just encourage anyone to is, 
you know, getting their eyes on the things above, but specifically getting into the Word and praying and really, really seeking the Lord um, about what He says, that invitation to come and know me. Hmm. Yeah, that's good. And um, just as we we close then, I guess I would encourage anyone who is wanting to get into the Word for, for themselves, Pastor Steve Gallagher put together a Bible study called The Walk of Repentance, Mm -hmm. which is all about that. That's an ongoing lifestyle, and there are numbers of attitudes and um, goals and actions in our lives, maybe, that are not pleasing to the Lord. And so that, that Bible study will help to bring some of those things to the surface so that you can really turn from them and turn to the Lord and ask him for repentance and work out that repentance and experience um, something hopefully very different than what you've experienced in the past, you know, just this cycle of failure and resolutions and then striving and shame and then maybe doing okay for a little bit and then failing again. It doesn't have to be that way at all. Yeah. So, all right. Thanks, Gabriel, very much for coming in. So, in this episode, we focused on two of the things that have no power to bring about change in an addict's life. But these are just two. We could have also talked about accountability software, behavioral modification, the multitudes of psychotherapeutic modalities, We could have talked about techniques to build willpower, yoga, stress relief techniques. Are you getting the point? (laughs) The point is that only Jesus has the power to really transform us, and he does it through the power of repentance and the power of the Holy Spirit. He may use accountability software to help keep us safe in a time of weakness, but it's not our Savior. Jesus is. It is good to bring our sins into the light, but confession to a group isn't our savior. Jesus is. Anything that we look to, to deliver us or to keep us, it only ends up betraying us. Jesus alone will never let us down. So, what are you trusting in today? What are you looking to for deliverance and for strength to break free? Is it truly just Jesus? If you haven't already listened to our Freedom From Porn series, I would highly recommend that you check that out. It's a nine-part series that will help you really grasp what Jesus uses to set us free. It will encourage you to put all of your faith in Him and then let Him use what He wants to use in your life instead of putting your faith in things that are powerless to change you. If you want to hear those episodes, just look for episodes 353 through 361. That's it for this week. We'll see you next time. Purity for Life is a production of Pure Life Ministries. For over 30 years, Pure Life Ministries has been the go-to for those whose lives have been devastated by sexual sin. Visit us on the web for more information about our life-changing counseling programs and powerful teaching materials. Also check out our video clips of men and women whose lives have been radically transformed. All that and more at purelifeministries.org.